Last Sunday, uh, Sandra Van Opstel talked about feelings and emotions uh, when she dealt with Psalm 73, and I want to sort of attach myself to that similar uh, vein as, as we talk this morning. The psalm that we're looking at and listening to and preaching with is Psalm 137. Uh, it's it's an offensive psalm. Uh, it's not a very Christian psalm. Uh, it's a hard psalm. And so uh, I look forward to kind of hearing from it. And I want you to turn your Bibles, if you have them, to that number. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, Let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, raise it, raise it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, you devastator, happy shall he be who requites you with what you have done to us. Happy shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are various genres in scripture, various styles of writing, types of writing. The Bible has uh, books of law. The Bible has um, prophetic material. The Bible has narratives. The Bible has epistles, apocalyptic literature. There are all kinds of writing within the psalm, and uh, within the Bible rather, and, and one of those genres, one of those types of writing is called wisdom literature. Wisdom literature uh, includes books like Job and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Psalms. And, and wisdom literature uh, tries to address life in general ways, in, in very non-specific ways. And when you read wisdom literature, you come away with a, a, a general sense of how to handle life, how to go about interacting in human experience. Wisdom literature tells us something about what it means to be a human being. 
you don't really look at um, 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 wisdom literature the same way you would books of the law because books of the law tell us what the commandments are, what the legal codes are, what the expectations are for the people of God in the community of Israel, for example. You don't look at wisdom literature the way you would narratives because they tell the story, for instance, in the Gospels about Jesus. But wisdom literature gives us general practical help in trying to be human. The Psalms are part of wisdom literature. And, and, and that aspect of, of wisdom literature in the Psalms that we find is, is insight, is commentary, is music, lyrics about real life issues. What it means, what it feels like, what it looks like to be a human being. Now, the Psalms are, are broken up in two broad categories. One category is thanksgiving. There are Psalms of thanksgiving. And a second category are Psalms of lament. Everybody say thanksgiving. thanksgiving. Say lament. Thanksgiving deals with gratitude on the one hand, but lament talks about distress. And, and, and those two categories try to cover the basic uh, parts, the basic essentials of what it feels like to be human. We're either in distress on the one hand or trying to negotiate with the suffering and the stress and the trauma of being a person on a journey called life or we are filled with joy, thanksgiving or something related to gratitude. This particular psalm, Psalm 137, is a lament. It's a lament, but it's a particular kind of lament. Scholars call it the imprecatory psalm. The imprecatory psalm. There are 18 imprecatory psalms, and this is one of the most explosive ones because of how it ends, because it talks about taking the heads of infants, the heads of babies, Babylonian babies, but babies nonetheless, and dashing them against the rocks. And, 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 and the imprecatory psalms sound like that. They are psalms that, that try to appeal to God for God's wrath upon Israel's enemies. The imprecatory psalms are asking, seeking, appealing to God for wrath, for justice, for equity, for balance. The lament psalms are psalms that express Israel's hard feelings in the ear of God. They are prayers in God's ears. I want you to hear me say that, that Psalm 137, in some ways just like Psalm 73 that we heard last week, is a prayer. And so how Christians interpret this psalm, how we engage this material, how we, how we, how we look at the writer of these psalms who says these bad words has to be tempered by the fact that these words are not words necessarily for you to live by, but they are 
words expressing the psalmist's deep desire, anguish, and hurt in God's ears. They are prayers. Eugene Peterson, the the, uh, scholar pastor who translated the entire Bible uh, into uh, the message translation, talks about prayers and he says that the Bible... The Bible teaches us to be honest, but that's not the only aspect to the scripture. The, 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 the Psalms train us in honesty. Scriptures train us in how to be honest, but more than that, the Bible trains and educates and teaches us on what it means to pray. We not only walk away from the Bible learning how to be honest, but we walk away from the Bible with a form of prayer. A way of praying that is appropriate to the complexity of our lives. Peterson says that mature prayer is dominated by a sense of God. Prayer rescues us from our preoccupation with ourselves and pulls us into adoration and along a pilgrimage to God. Prayer, mature prayer, pulls us away from our preoccupation with ourselves and into adoration, into worship, into pilgrimage with God. The laments These hard prayers, these explosive words are a part of the biblical witness that tries to train us in what it means to be on a journey toward God, on a life before God. And so the question is, how do these psalms, how do these laments train us in godliness? How can we glean something from words like Psalm 137? This lament. Now let me tell you that the laments usually have a three-part structure. In most laments, Israel complains. Say that word, complains. Israel complains based upon the distance between what God has promised and what they are experiencing. So the lament always has a complaint. You promise something, God, we're experiencing this. In Psalm 137, they're in the middle of exile. They have been taken from their homes and displaced to Babylon. So uh, the laments have complaints. The second thing is the laments always have uh, uh, Israel bringing forth or invoking their covenant from God. Say covenant. Uh, So there are complaints, there's covenantal language. Israel is saying, in other words, we belong to you. We are your people. Remember us. We have your covenant. We have your law. We are living in as your people. So there's covenantal language. And the third part of the lament is something about God's behavior, what God does, how God acts, or the expectation for God to act. This lament 
This particular Psalm 137 has underneath the words, between the verses, between the lines of poetry, an extreme hatred for sin, an extreme hatred for their exilic conditions, an extreme hatred for how the Babylonians are treating them. But this this psalm also has underneath it, in most of these verses, a prophetic edge, a prophetic utterance in that they are calling for uh, God's words about Babylon to come to pass. They are prophesying, telling before it happens what God has said would happen to the Chaldeans, to the Edomites, to the Babylonians. And, and, and what happens here is that the psalmist is taking a play from Isaiah's prophetic uh, words in chapter 13. Let's, let's look at Isaiah 13, verses 15 through 19. And, and you'll notice some of the language in this passage is similar to Psalm 137. Isaiah 13, 15 through 19 says, anyone who is captured will be cut down, run through with the sword. Their children, their little children will be dashed to death before their eyes. Their homes will be sacked and their wives will be raped. Look, I will stir up the Medes against Babylon. They cannot be tempted by silver or bribed with gold. The attacking armies will shoot down the young men with arrows. They will have no mercy on helpless babies and will show no compassion for children. Babylon, the most glorious of kingdoms, the flower of Chaldean pride, will be devastated like Sodom and Gomorrah when God destroyed them. Isaiah's language here. Is, 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 is thick inside Psalm 137. Like Isaiah is foretelling what the Medes will do to the Babylonians, how they will attack them, how they will go to war with them and win that war and treat them like raping their wives and killing their children. Isaiah is telling about that and Israel in the Psalm seems to be echoing this language in its lament. And in this particular psalm, there is that strange mix of anger and hope. Israel is angry, mad, irritated, frustrated with exile and how their tormentors, their captors are asking them to do the impossible. And that is to sing a happy song, to sing a song of Zion. Proverbs 25 and 20 says, singing cheerful songs to a person with a heavy heart is like taking someone's coat in cold weather and pouring vinegar in a wound. Israel here has a heavy heart. The community of musicians who gather together and pin this psalm after exile, about exile, has a heavy heart. And it is in a heavy heart, a heart with anguish and pain and suffering and loss and disappointment that Israel speaks these words in Psalm 137. 
This psalm, like every other number, every other of the 149, belong to the church. These words are the church's words. And so church, let's go back to the psalm and read it together. Read it like you actually believe that these words belong to the church. By the waters of Babylon, read with me. We sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem. Israel is in exile in Babylon. And in this psalm, we see the psalmist, the writer, talking about uh, comparing, if you will, Babylon and Zion. It opens with a question that goes right to the point that, 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 that they talk about later on in the verses. And that is that, that there is a difference between where we are and Jerusalem or Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? We cannot pass these words in this psalm without uh, thinking first about what we sing. This is a happy song. This is a song of Zion. This is a hymn. This, this is spiritual music. These are sacred songs. These, these songs are what the church, what the new Israel sings. So we have to think about what we sing, but, but I think this psalm also pushes us to, to discover again not only what we sing, but for whom we sing or to whom we sing. And, 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 and I want to suggest to you that, that this psalm is coming out of an Israel that says there are some songs that are not for public review. There are some songs that are not for uh, any Anybody to hear. On the other hand, there are certain songs that are for the audience of one, the audience of the God who is the Holy One of Israel, the God who is the keeper of Israel. And, and this exilic community asks this powerful question, how can we sing the Lord's song for someone who is not the Lord? Walter Brueggemann, one of uh, my favorite Old Testament scholars, theologians, says about this passage that such songs 
as Psalm 137, are pornographic when they are sung among those who do not hope in Zion. This psalm, these words, suggest for me that worship is, is, is the, the substance of defiant hope. Worship is, is an act of resistance, an act of a countercultural people. It is a hopeful behavior that people do for a God of hope. Worship, singing of songs are are the behaviors of people who know a God of justice, who know a God of fairness, who know a God of holiness and righteousness. It is is the maintenance of a countercultural posture, an act that Babylon cannot control. There are some words that God keeps for himself. Have you personally ever had God say something to you that you wanted to talk about, that you wanted to tell other people about, but you couldn't because you knew that that was between you and God? Now, now, this psalm is the psalm of Israel. It's the com- a communal psalm, but, but it connects with us individually. There, there are times, there are words, there are things that God will say to you if you did not know it. There are times and words and things that God will say to you that you are not permitted to say to other people. You know how it looks? It looks like you knowing that your husband is wrong. That you having all of the history on him, being able to cut him down and something holds your tongue. Because that's not language that you should share at that time with anyone but God. Now, of course, there are times when you should say things, but then those times when there are, that, that's material for God. That's a song of Zion for God's ear. My, my mentor, one of my mentors, the one from, from Atlanta, was here last week, and uh, we have the kind of relationship where I, I talk to him every two or three months and we talk for about three hours, you know, uh, and just kind of catch up. I sort of have three or four questions for him and he just kind of talks for an hour every question. Um, and so last week he was actually in town and uh, we, we, we set up breakfast time and, and I had an experience like this because he said something. He said something, and I thought, <gasps> and have ever since wanted to talk about it. Back to him, back to somebody. Back, and, and in my gut, in my heart, I hear God saying, that's between me and you. That's between me and you. That's not for you to talk about with somebody else. 
Israel here is asked by their captors, by their tormentors, to sing, to say, to do what is between Israel and God. They talk about Jerusalem or Zion. Zion and Jerusalem are interchangeable. And so they're talking about Zion. And you need to know that Jerusalem uh, is, or Zion is the place where God dwells. And when Israel talks about Zion in these Psalms, they're talking about a holy place. They're talking about God's habitation. Uh, Psalm 22 says that God inhabits the praises of his people. And and for, for Israel, when 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 they sang about Zion, they were invoking the awesome presence of God. They were singing and they were reconnecting with where God dwelt. And they were resisting this fact that Babylon and Zion were the same place. Verse 5 says, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. They talk about how Babylon and Zion aren't the same and then they go into this language about forgetting. And forgetting Jerusalem in this passage would mean forgetting uh, God who brought them together. Forgetting Jerusalem would be uh, the same as forgetting their identity as a corporate people of God. Forgetting Jerusalem would mean them giving up their civic and political and theological aspirations. Forgetting Jerusalem would be just like dying to this people and forgetting Jerusalem would be equal to them singing these songs for their captors and they were saying in their resistance that Zion is not exile. Babylon and Zion are not the same places. One of the things I want you to walk away thinking about this morning is where you live your city, your neighborhood. And I want you to think about whether where you live, where you go, where you work, where you traffic frequent, is that place the place where God wants it to be or the place that God wants it to be? In other words, how close is Chicago, if you live in the city, with Zion? How much does this city look like Jerusalem? How much does where you live look like a place where God dwells, would be pleased to dwell? Because the distance between where you live and God's holy habitation is the work of Psalm 137. And you saying to God in your own way, God, make this place a place of justice. It is not a place of justice. It is not a place of holiness. It is not a place of righteousness. This psalm here pushes us to question whether in our city we will forget what it means to expect holiness. Another way of saying that is asking 
whether uh, we live in a city as if it is or isn't the ultimate city. See, Israel is in exile and they are telling their captors, we may be imprisoned, but we won't treat this place like it is the ultimate city, like it is what we are devoted to, like it is the city that we shed our tears for. We will treat this exilic condition differently. Is our city, is our community the ultimate place, the ultimate Zion, the ultimate Jerusalem where God dwells? This is in some ways what is at work when, for example, uh, the volunteer attorneys in Micah Legal Aid gather twice a month and do legal aid clinic. You know how? Because there is in Logan Square, in communities around Logan Square, in the city of Chicago, people who can't afford legal counsel. And that is what it is like to be in exile. But the distance between exile and Zion is an attorney saying, how can I give you services and bring more justice to where you live? This is what people in, uh, uh, people in our children's ministry, volunteers in Kid City are doing when some of our children go upstairs and have no clue of what it means to be introduced to God in the midst of a city where children fight and clamor and don't know what it means to share, don't know what it means to listen, and children's ministry sits there, listens, models what it means to be a part of a different city, models what it means to give your resources, to share as a child so that you can learn what it means not to just be a citizen of Chicago where children fight and, and, and clamor, but where you learn how to be a citizen and a resident of another city. The psalmist says, Remember, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if we forget you, Jerusalem, if we forget you, if we let go of things that we should hold, if we drop things that we should keep, if we forget what we should remember, take away the skill I have in worshiping God, take my tongue, take my hand from which I play instruments, take it all because it is worthless, take it away because I have begun to believe and lived as if living in exile is God's will. There are things we could forget at New Community. We're a multi-ethnic church. We're a multicultural church. We're just coming across, uh, coming through the Race Matters uh, sermon series, the conversations, and, and we'll revisit kind of those conversations uh, in a couple of weeks in our church. But, but we could easily forget, for example, the history of Chinese Americans in this country and how undervalued railroad workers are, have been in the, in, in, in the history of the United States and act as if their relatives who have come through years in this country, have no story to tell. We could forget. Some of you have heard uh, about my wife's former pastor uh, in the media. Uh, his name is James Meeks. Reverend Meeks is a state senator, and he's boycotting 
the Chicago public school system uh, or, or, and or uh, state funding uh, for education uh, right now. And I won't, uh, I won't comment on uh, how close or far away I am from his method and from methods of other pastors, but, but they are trying to push this issue of uh, reform for educational funding in the state of Illinois. We've consistently been like 48 out of 50 states, 49, I didn't, uh, 49. And, and, and somebody has to say, don't forget about the teachers in our school system. Some way or another, somebody has to say, what about these students? What about these children who are in the middle of criminal institutions called schools? And the salvation is teachers who come out of their pockets and buy supplies. However we do it, somebody has to remember that. And I would suggest to you that it is the church's role to bring our leaders, to bring our politicians, to bring our our, our citizens back to realities that are so easily forgotten. How do we do it? Do we do it? This is not a very Christian psalm. It doesn't say anything about forgiving one's enemies. It doesn't say anything about feeding the hungry. It doesn't say anything about clothing the naked. It isn't a very Christian psalm. It it almost sounds unchristian when you use language that sounds like you want to kill children. I, uh, I am a, uh, I am a, a budding writer, and uh, some of some of you know. Some of you actually have expressed interest in this and read some things that I've written. And, um, and one of the things I know about writing is that it's a frightening. Well, writing isn't frightening. I'll correct myself to say, being read is frightening. It's vulnerable. Can't even get it out. Help him, Lord. Thank you. Vulnerable business. Writing words for people to read. And I come closer to this psalmist because this psalmist is doing a very risky thing in putting these words down in this hymn book. This psalmist is writing words that we hear and, and, and we're, we're far away from his context. We're far away from her exile. And the psalmist leaves words for us to interpret, leaves words for us to imagine context that we're very far away from. And, and I want to suggest to you that the psalmist is doing some courageous work and, and, and it doesn't really sound like it's appropriate for the psalmist to say these things. We don't see a lot of explicitly Christian language. If Christian language doesn't mean being honest when you're angry, being upfront when you feel, I can't say that word, uh, uh, upset. This psalm is a reminder that humanness 
includes torture, suffering, anger, bitterness, and those things can't be overlooked. It is a lament that we need to hear. And perhaps they're not the words that we sing out every Sunday. Perhaps they're not the words that form uh, the first or the second worship set in our services. But perhaps these words are words that the church should say. Perhaps these words are words that the church should sing. This is about the last thing I want to say as as we come to a close. It's not Israel's role to, as we see in this psalm, take matters into their own hands. It is Israel's role to take their matters to God's hands. And in this lament, Israel asks God to do something to bring justice, to bring fairness. Israel prays and says, this is how we feel. God, what are you going to do about it? They cry out for their Zion. They shed tears for their Jerusalem, and I want to suggest to you, I want to say to you that that is what we're supposed to do. And so, as Israel lamented, as Israel prayed, as Israel talked to God, sang a harsh song, saying, God, remember your covenant with us? Would you do something about this? We're going to do that this morning as a church. I want to invite you to pray. I want us to pray together as a church. Now, some of you who are going through personal exiles, personal times of suffering and struggle, and you feel this language because of things that are going on in your life, You may want to pray alone. I want to open up this front for you to come and you just to kneel for you to pray. I'll ask the ministry, our prayer ministry, who's ever assigned for today to be up here just in case you want to pray with someone individually. But for the rest of us, I want us to collect in in groups of three or four and to spend a few moments praying. And there's going to be a guide on, uh, on on the screen, but I want you to feel free to open up your Bible to Psalm 73, to Psalm 33, to Psalm uh, 103, or to, or to Psalm 137, and pray these, these words in the psalm, or, or to use some of these guides, these, these points to guide you in your time of prayer. We're not going to pray very long. I want you to know there's an end. We're not going to spend hours and hours of wailing, and no, no. So don't, don't set yourself up for that, because we're not going there. I don't want you to, to think we're going to spend that much time, but we will cry out to God as a church. So look at these. Um, look at these. I'll, I'll read them uh, just, just one time. Um, our, our, our Colombian missionaries are coming back tomorrow and we want to pray perhaps for their, uh, we want to pray for their certain safe return uh, tomorrow. Pray for the mission and focus of our church for this fall. 
We're going into the fall over the next few weeks. Pray for wisdom and direction from God for our church's future. These first prayers are prayers for our church, the safe return of our missionaries, our focus and mission for the fall. We've had leadership changes that we've talked about. We will need God to lead us and wisdom and direction for our future. The second are prayers, uh, just prayers to jumpstart you in praying about our city, praying for our city. Pray for the staff and students of our schools, that God would encourage them, give them focus, give them resources, strength. Two, pray for those who've been affected by power outages this week. We can look over this, but many folks have had issues, health challenges based upon these outages. Pray for the intense violence, the increasing murder rate that's going on in our city. Pray that God would give us peace. Seek the peace of this city for our world for our world, finally. Genocide and violence across war-torn countries. God needs to give God's world peace. <sighs> Food shortages. Uh, some, of you, some of you may know this, but uh, the Chinese government allowed uh, everybody in the Olympics to get a Bible. <laughs> and and this, 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 again, can be something that we overlook, but that's something phenomenal. And pray that God would use scripture in ways that draw people to him. Uh, let's just prepare the way and then we'll go later into great is your mercy. But as we, as we spend time in prayer, if you want to pray on your own, you can stay where you are or come up here and pray. Everybody else, gather in groups of two or three, uh, three or four, Tell the people who are closest to you your name because it's kind of odd to pray with people whose name you don't know. But spend some time and let's pray. I realize that some of you are going to be uncomfortable with this. I realize that. But prayer is what the church does. It's one of the things that the church does. So let's pray, church. Dear God, you hear our hearts, you hear the words that we're praying, the words that we're speaking. Whether we're praying to you about the suffering that's happening in our city, whether we're talking to you about our need as a church to be led by you, whether, whether we're bringing back to you, back to your ears, what you know in terms of what's happening in your world. God, we say as your church that without you, without your act, without you doing something, without you raising yourself, strengthening your own strong arm, God, without you stretching out your hand to save, There is no hope. Our hope is in you. Our strength is in you because you are our everlasting God. And so as we come to cry out to you, as we come to call the needs of our city in your ear, as we come to say that people across this world need your help, we find our hope in you, everlasting God. We pray for grace. We pray for strength. We pray for your encouragement that you would give us the ability to take heart. And Lord God, remind us again that you are our everlasting God, that our hope never fails in you. Church, this is our last song. I want you to stand 
We rehearsed it earlier. We're going to sing it. We're going to sing it again about our everlasting God. When, when we clap at the end of songs like that, that is a long-standing way of saying, I agree with everything we said. So when we end songs like that, and a few of you, yeah, that's what everybody does. Everybody can clap. So when we clap, we're saying, we agree with what we said from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. The Lord be with you. Let's have our corporate benediction, everybody. We are God's servants gifted with dreams and visions. Upon us rests the grace of God like flames of fire. We will love and serve the Lord in the strength of the Spirit. May the deep peace of Christ be with us. The strong arms of God sustain us and the power of the Holy Spirit strengthens us in every way. Amen. See you all next week.